So this is our ongoing discussion of Simone Dong's individuation in light of notions of form and, and information. We're going to be reading uh, the last subsection of part two of the book on vital individuation today. So that's subsection five, topology and ontogenesis. So last week we saw, I think the, the key idea was this presentation of the notion of information, the, the two different notions of information. So on the one hand, there's the transmission notion of information. So it's information insofar as it can be transmitted. And this is the, the concept of information as it's presented in uh, information theory or, or communication theory. In this notion of information, the uh, quantity of information in a, a message is inversely proportional to its predictability. So the, the less predictable the message is, the more information it, it carries. And then a, a message that, would, that was entirely predictable uh, would, would carry no information. Then on the other hand, uh, there's a second notion of information, which is related to signification for Simon Don. So it's this we could call it, I guess, the content notion of information as opposed to the, the signal notion of information. This notion of information is one in which predictability is positively correlated with not quite the quantity of information because this is not a, a purely quantitative notion of information. But in another text, Simono calls this the tension of information. So there's, a, for example, a, a shape a regular shape, like a square or a rectangle or something, is a very simple figure um, as opposed to something like a, a picture of a, a beach where each grain of sand is in a particular location. And, uh, and so the, the simple picture is much more predictable, um, whereas the picture of the beach is very unpredictable because there each each grain of sand has, has to be captured individually. And so in this notion of information, there's more, there's a higher degree of information in some sort of vague sense, insofar as the content of a message is more predictable. So it's uh, in, a, in a certain respect, it's the opposite of the previous notion of information. And this, so this notion has to do with signification because it, it has to do with the receptability of the message. So it's not just the receiving a signal. So you can have any sort of signal that's received through a communication channel, and that's something that is accounted for in the first notion of information. But then what, uh, what does the signal, what does the message received actually do on the other end at the receiver end, or, or how is it incorporated into the functioning of the receiver uh, is a question that's not addressed by the quantitative theory of information. And so this second notion of information has to do with that question or that problem of, of how the message is incorporated into the functioning of the receiver. So this notion of information, the second notion has sort of built into it or, or part of what uh, underlies it is this notion of disparation that we've seen throughout this part of the book. And so the, the basic example that Simon Dome is always working from is that of binocular vision. And uh, in binocular vision, you have slightly different um, images presented to each eye through binocular vision. We somehow combine those two images or, or produce this dimension of depth, or we invent or discover a dimension of depth that combines the two images, but without, without losing anything. So it's not just that we abstract from the two images and get what's common to them. We, we keep what's different uh, in each image and is precisely, precisely through that 
the difference that we're able to generate the perception of depth. And, and Simono takes this to be the sort of model for any situation of uh, reception of, of information. Uh, so there has to be this disparation as a precondition for there to be a reception of information. And then there has to be something like an invention of a, a new dimension or a discovery of a new dimension in order for the information to play a role in the functioning of the receiver. So that's basically what we saw last time. So let's pick up from the, the beginning of subsection five. Um, I'll read the first page or so, and then we'll discuss as usual. Subsection 5, topology and genesis, sorry, and ontogenesis. To this day, the problem of the rapport between life and inert matter has above all focused on the problem of the fabrication of living matter from inert matter. The properties of life have been situated in the chemical composition of living substances. Many synthetic bodies have been elaborated since the synthesis of urea. Not only can chemical synthesis produce rather small molecular bodies from catabolic transformations, it can also produce bodies that participate directly in anabolic functions. Nevertheless, there is still quite a gap between the production of substances utilized by life and the production of the living being. To say that we are getting closer to life, we would need to produce the topology of the living being, its particular type of space. The relation between a milieu of interiority and a milieu of exteriority. The bodies of organic chemistry do not bring with them a different topology than that of the usual physical and energetic relations. However, perhaps the topological condition is primordial in the living being qua living being. There is no evidence that we can think the living being adequately by way of Euclidean rapports. Perhaps the space of the living being isn't a Euclidean space. The living being can be considered in Euclidean space, where it is then defined as one body among other bodies. The very structure of the living being can be described in Euclidean terms, but nothing proves that this description is adequate. If there were a set of topological configurations necessary for life, and if, there were untranslatable, if they were untranslatable into Euclidean terms, then every attempt to make a living being with the matter elaborated by organic chemistry would have to be considered insufficient. Perhaps the essence of the living being is a certain topological arrangement that cannot be known based on the physics and chemistry that typically use Euclidean space. Currently, we can do nothing but remain content with conjectures in this domain. It is nevertheless interesting to observe that the properties of living matter manifest more as the maintaining and self-sustaining of certain topological conditions than as pure energetic or structural conditions. In this sense, one of the properties at the basis of all the functions, be it the conduction of nerve impulses, muscular contraction, or assimilation, is the polarized asymmetrical nature of cellular permeability. The living membrane, which is anatomically differentiated or merely functional, when no particular formation materializes its limit, is characterized as what separates a region of interiority from a region of exteriority. The membrane is polarized and therefore allows the passage of some particular body centripetally or centrifugally when blocking the passage of some other particular body. No doubt the mechanism of this permeability can function in a single direction for a definite type of chemical substance. This is how we have explained the activation of the muscles through the intermediary of the neuromuscular junction by an unleash, unleashing of acetylcholine, which momentarily breaks down the potential of the polarized membrane. But this just pushes the problem back, since the membrane is living precisely in the sense that it always repolarizes, as if it were, according to Gellhorn's expression, a sodium-potassium pump that recreates the polarization of the membrane after functioning. An inert membrane would very quickly be reduced to the neutral state and is functioning as a selective membrane. On the contrary, the living membrane conserves this property. It regenerates this characteristic asymmetry of its existence and functioning. It could be said that the living substance within the membrane 
regenerates the membrane, but that the membrane is what guarantees that the living being is alive each moment, since this membrane is selective. It is what maintains the milieu of interiority as a milieu of interiority relative to the milieu of exteriority. It could be said that the living being lives at the limits of itself, on its limit. In a simple and unicellular organism, there is a direction toward the inside and a direction toward the outside relative to this limit. In a multicellular organism, the existence of the interior milieu complicates topology in the sense that there are several stages of interiority and exteriority. Thus, an endocrine gland empties the products of its activity into the bloodstream or some other organic liquid. The typical organism's interior milieu is in fact a milieu of exteriority relative to this gland. Likewise, the intestinal cavity is an exterior milieu for the assimilating cells that perform selective absorption within the intestinal tract. According to the topology of the living organism, the interior of the intestines is in fact exterior to the organism, even with, though within this space, a certain number of transformations conditioned and controlled by the organic functions are performed. This space is an annexed exteriority. Thus, if the contents of the stomach or the intestines are harmful to the organism, the coordinated movements that aid in expulsion will empty these cavities and evacuate into the completely exterior, independent space, the harmful substances that were in the exterior space and next to the interiority. Similarly, the progression of chyme is regulated by the different successive degrees of the biochemical activities of this chyme, which is controlled by interoceptors that are in fact sense organs and would more appropriately be called mediaceptors since they apprehend an information relative to the exterior annexed space and not relative to veritable interiority. Um, I'll stop there for now um, because this goes on. Yeah, so this first bit is about, he, he uses this term topology here, which, so the, the, the basic meaning of topology is, um, it has to do with, it's a mathematical discipline that is uh, about um, relations of, uh, of neighborhood of, of one point being a neighbor of another or uh, of a region being the neighborhood of a point. What topology, so in, in relation to or in contrast to geometry, topology doesn't, doesn't have or, or is not based on a notion of distance. So there's, there's no distance measurement in the same way that you have in, in geometry, uh, which means that in topology, you're only looking at relationships between points and not um, like a, a distance between points. And the relationship that, that Simon Dong was talking about here in particular is the interior versus exterior relationship. And, and so the, the most basic form of this relationship in living beings is across a membrane. A membrane in a, a living uh, organism is uh, is generally permeable to certain substances and uh, impermeable to others. And also it, it, it has a, a polarity in the sense that it is permeable in one direction, but not in another. Uh, something like uh, potassium is held on the inside of a membrane. And then there's a, a release mechanism that uh, uses that potassium, uh, it releases the potassium in, in some biological process. And then there's a, a, a sort of re, recharging process where the potassium is uh, builds up again on the inside of the membrane. And yeah, so Angus, uh, your question, uh, um, is it topological because of this relation between exterior and interior? Uh, yes, I think that's that's right. He, he contrasts this with a Euclidean geometry. So this is the standard geometry of uh, three-dimensional space, um, 
with a distance metric um, on it. The exterior um, interior contrast is, uh, is, is a topological one. And then in Euclidean space, you would have something like um, a distance metric. So you would have not just exterior and interior, but um, there would be distances between different portions of, of the organism or the structure, whatever it is. Right. So a, a living being has a, a membrane that separates an inside and, and an outside in terms of what is allowed to pass in, in which direction uh, across the membrane. And so someone don't contrast this with a Euclidean geometry because there's no there's no notion of distance in in a living organism or in the structure of a living organism in the way that there is this inside versus outside uh, contrast. So then he goes on to, yeah, so he talks about um, some of the properties of living matter versus uh, inert matter. And so he points out that organic chemistry is capable of synthesizing um, various uh, compounds that exist in living beings. Uh, and so the first one was urea, which was uh, sometime in the mid-19th century, I forget exactly when, which was the first organic compound that was synthesized by chemists. Um, but then he, he points out that organic chemistry has advanced to the point where it's capable of synthesizing not just the, um, the products of a catabolic reaction, so the the products of, of uh, breaking down some sort of structure uh, in inside the organism, um, but it's also capable of producing the compounds that are that participate in anabolic processes, so the processes that build up structures. So there, but despite despite this uh, advance of organic chemistry, he says we're not really any closer to synthesizing a living organism until we have something like this interior versus exterior structure. So we, we can produce chemicals that um, that occur within living organisms, but we can't, we're not really any closer to synthesizing a, a living organism itself. And then there's this line that um, that Angus has, has pointed to in the chat that uh, a living being lives at the limit of itself on its limit. And um, yeah, this is also true of the crystal, as, as Angus pointed out. Um, so the crystal also individuates at the limit, uh, and this is something Simon Dong has has discussed uh, in the the chapter or in the the part on on physical individuation. So there's there's definitely the the crystal that crystallizes across the the limit um, across its surface uh, is similar to the way that the the living being exists. Uh, on, around its membrane or across its membrane. But as we'll see later on in this uh, part that we're reading today, um, the crystal, the interior of the crystal is uh, is basically dead. It there As soon as uh, one layer has crystallized, the interior, um, that, that layer is then um, effectively inert uh, for the purpose of crystallization. Uh, so you can take a crystal and you can hollow out the interior uh, as long as you leave enough to <clears throat> to keep the um, the structural integrity of the outer shell. You can just hollow out the interior, and the crystal will continue to grow in the same way as it did before. Uh, so the the interior has no impact on the um, continuing process of individuation. Whereas in a living being, of course, you can't just hollow out a living being and and have it continue to live in the same way as it did before. So the, there's a relationship between the interior and the exterior in a living being uh, in a way that there isn't in the case of a crystal. 
Um, but we'll see, we'll see more on that when we get to that point. Um, and then maybe the last point before we move on, there's, there's also within living organisms, there's, there are sort of relative degrees of interiority and exteriority. So there's the actual, the complete, completely exterior. Um, there's what's outside the, the skin of the organism, uh, outside the organism's external boundary. Uh, but then inside the organism, there are, um, body cavities that are relatively exterior so there's the the um digestive tract for example is relatively exterior it it serves as a as a an internal exterior in a way so it, there's a something exterior to the rest of the body but it's interior to the to the boundaries of the body as a whole in in the case of uh endocrine glands that he he points to um the the bloodstream serves as uh an exterior into which the the glands release their their products and so there's um this this sense of relative exteriority and so you can have multiple levels of one organ or one system serving as the exterior to another one and you could have um as many different levels of interiority and exteriority as you want uh, and so this is is characteristic of multicellular organisms because there's not just one cell membrane that uh, makes up the structure, but you have an outer skin and then uh, interior uh, interior exteriorities, if, if you want to put it that way. Okay, so let's go on to the next page or so of this multi-page paragraph. Uh, so if someone else wants to pick up from We Therefore Find on page 252. We therefore find various levels of interiority in an organism. The space of the digestive cavities is a space of exteriority with, re with respect to the blood that floods the intestinal walls, but the blood in turn is a milieu of exteriority with respect to the endocrine glands that empty the products of their activity into the blood. It can therefore be said that the structure of a complex organism is not just integration and differentiation. It is also this establishment of a transductive mediation of interiorities and exteriorities going from an absolute interiority to an absolute exteriority through different mediators of relative interiority and exteriority. Organisms could be classified according to the number of mediations of interiority and exteriority that they utilize to carry out their functions. The simplest organism, which can be called elementary, is the one that does not possess a mediate interior milieu, but merely an absolute interior and an absolute exterior. For this organism, the characteristic polarity of life is on the level of the membrane. It's here that life essentially exists as an aspect of a dynamic topology that itself maintains the metastability through which it exists. Life is the self-sustaining of a metastability, but this metastability requires the topological, a topological condition. Structure and function are linked together. Since the deepest and most initial vital structure is topological, the structure of Integration and differentiation only appears in complex, organism, complex organisms with the appearance of the nervous system and the distinction between sense organs, effectors, and neural centers. This non-topological structure of integration and differentiation appears as a means of mediation and organization in order to support and extend the first structure, which remains not only subjacent but also fundamental. Thus, we do not grasp the structure of the organism when we start from the organismic unity of the complex ensembles of evolved organisms, since we run the risk of attributing a privilege to the organization of integration and differentiation. We can no longer account for the veritable structure of the living being by considering that this, by 
considering the cells that compose a complex organism according to the atomistic method as architectonic units of the organism of this organism the totalizing vision and the elementary vision are equally inadequate we have to start with the basic function that depends on the first topological structure of interiority and exteriority and then we have to see how this function is mediated by a chain of intermediary interiorities and exteriorities at the two ends of the chain there is still the absolute interior and the absolute exterior the functions of integration and differentiation are in the function of metastable asymmetry between the between absolute interiority and absolute exteriority this is why living individuation must be thought according to topological schemata furthermore topological structures are those by means of which the evolving organism's spatial problems can be resolved thus the development of the neocortex and superior species essentially occurs through a folding of the cortex this this is a topological solution not a euclidean solution it is then understood why the cortical homunculus is nothing but a very approximate representation of the cortical areas of projection projection in fact converts a euclidean space into a topological space such that the cortex is not adequately represented in a euclidean fashion all things considered we should not speak of projection from the for the cortex even though there is in the geometrical sense of the term projection for the uh, projection for the small regions sorry lost my spot uh, we should say a conversion of euclidean space into topological space the basic functional structures are topological the corporeal schema converts these topological structures into euclidean structures through a mediate system of relations that is the very dimensionality of the corporeal schema again just continuing this idea about um relative degrees of interiority uh so you can have a, a an internal body cavity that serves as the exterior for some uh other organ or some other system within the organism and he contrasts this interior and exterior structure of the organism with um this uh this notion of integration and differentiation that we've seen before in this part of the book um so he he says that this this integration and differentiation structure is not sufficient to account for uh the the structure of a living being so we have to hold on to something like the interior versus exterior distinction and the uh different degrees of interiority and exteriority we have to hold on to that as well as the the notion of integration and differentiation at the same time there are sort of two uh opposite errors or two opposite insufficient accounts for the living being that that he here calls um the atomistic and the uh totalizing uh or sorry he says the the totalizing vision and the elementary vision so these are two different um errors you can make in in trying to account for the living organism so on the one hand the elementary or the atomistic vision would be one that takes the the cell to be um the basic uh elements of the of a living being and the living being is basically just a composite of a bunch of different cells and then the other one is one that that takes the whole uh organism uh takes the organism as a whole and only looks at that organism insofar as it is uh is a whole uh, and treats it as one entity so it it sort of over emphasizes the uh exterior boundary the the boundary between the the absolute exterior and the rest of the organism 
what we have to do instead is hold on to something like the middle ground between uh, between these two uh, extremes or these two incorrect ways of, of analyzing the living being. Uh, and so we have to um, we have to have the two ends of the chain. Uh, so we have the absolute exterior and the absolute interior. But then you also have in the middle ground, in between the two, you have the, re- the other links of the chain, the uh, relative interior and exterior portions or systems within the organism. And then he, he points to certain uh, structures that have this topological nature so that they, they, um, they represent. Uh, so maybe the example is the, the easiest way to explain this. So um, he points to the uh, cortical homunculus, for example. Which I posted the uh, the image uh, in the chat here, um, but there are certain areas within the human brain that um, map onto um, different parts of the of the body, uh, both in the sensory um, sensory portions of the cortex and in the motor areas of the cortex. But the the mapping is not uh, is not like a a sort of uh, to scale mapping, uh, so certain regions of the body have much uh, more dense um, representation in in the homuncular cord, uh, sorry, sorry, the cortical homunculus. Uh, so, for example, the hands are represented in a, a much bigger region of the of the cortex than uh, the the proportion of a human body that a hand makes up, and the face as well is a, a big portion of the of the cortex but um so in, you have these uh representations of uh different regions of the body but it's not uh it doesn't preserve distances it doesn't preserve the scale of the different parts of the body uh different regions are represented in in different proportions so you can see on the the little diagram that um the the face and the hands take up more than like the whole rest of the body in terms of uh, um, how much of the cortex is represented and and so this is a an example for Simon Don of uh, a topological solution to a to um, a problem of space so how do you um, how the the problem being how to Create a, a a mapping of the the body onto the cortex, um, and here it's a, a topological mapping rather than a, a geometrical one. So we can go on to the next bit. Uh, if someone wants to read from if living individuation, if living indi- individuation is a process that essentially unfolds uh, according to topological structurations. Then it is uh, understood why the borderline cases between inert matter and the living being are precisely cases of processes that um, unfold according to the dimensions of exteriority and interiority. These cases include the individuation of crystals. The difference between the living being and the inert crystal consists in the fact that the interior space of the inert crystal does not serve to keep extending the individuation carried out at the limits of the crystal undergoing growth. There is only interiority and exteriority from the one molecular layer to another, from an uh, already deposited uh, molecular layer to a layer about to be deposited. Uh, A crystal could be deprived of an important part of its substance without stopping its growth. 
The interior is not homoesthetic and in its entire entire entirety relative to ex the exterior or more exactly uh, relative to the limit of polarity. In order for the crystal to individuate, it must continue to grow. This individuation is superficial. The past doesn't serve a purpose in the crystal's mass. It merely plays a role of bare support and does not provide the availability of an information signal. The succession of time is not condensed. Conversely, in the living being, the space of interiority with its content plays a role for the per perpetuation of individuation throughout the whole being. There is and can be a resonance because what has been produced by individuation in the past belongs to the content of the interior space. The whole content of the interior space is topologically in contact with the content of the exterior space at the limits of the living being. Indeed, um, there is no distance in topology. The whole mass of living matter in the interior space is actively present to the exterior world at the limit of the living being. All the products of the past individuation are present immediately and without distance. The fact of belonging to the milieu of interiority does not merely signify being inside in the Euclidean sense, but being on the interior side of the limit without a delay in functional efficacy, without isolation, without inertia. The, li uh, the living being doesn't uh, just interiorize by assimilating. It condenses and presents everything that has been el elaborated in the successive um, this function of individuation is uh, spatio-temporal. In addition to the topology of the living being, it would be necessary to define a chronology of the living being associated with its topology, uh, which would be as elementary as it, and uh, different from the physical form of uh, time as topology is different from the structure of Euclidean space. In the same way that there are no distances in topology, in chronology, there is no quantity of time. Uh, this in no way means that the time of vital individuation is continuous, as Bergson claims. Continuity is one of the possible chronological schemata, but it is not the only one. Schemata of discontinuity, conti contiguity, and uh, envelopment can be defined in chronology as well as in topology. Whereas Euclidean space and physical time cannot coincide, the schemata of chronology and topology are applicable to one another. They are not distinct and they form the first dimensionality of the living being. Every topological characteristic has a chronological correlate and vice versa. Thus, for living substance, the fact of being within the interior of the selective polarized membrane means that this substance has been held in the condensed past. The fact that the uh, substance is in the milieu of exteriority means that this substance can come forth, put itself forward for assimilation and possibly breach or harm the living individual. The substance is no, is uh, to come, avenir, the interior past and exterior future confront each other at the level of the polarized milieu. This confrontation in the operation of selective assimilation is in the present of the living being, which is formed by this polarity of passage of obstruction between past substances and substances to come that are present to one another via the operation of individuation. The present is 
this metastability of rapport between interior and exterior, past and future, the exterior is uh, exterior and the interior is interior, relative to this mutual allegmatic activity of presence. Topology and chronology coincide in the individuation of the living being. It is only late, later on, and according to the physical and collective uh, individuations, that the coincidence can be broken. Topology and chronology are not a priori uh, forms of sensibility, but the very dimensionality of the living being undergoing individuation. Right. So the the question now is the the difference between the case of physical individuation, the case of the crystal that we saw in the part on physical individuation, and the case of the living being. Um, so as we, as we discussed, the, the living being uh, lives across its membrane, across its boundary. Um, uh, and this is similar to the way that the crystal individuates across its limit. But the difference here is that in the case of the crystal, in, in a previous passage about this, this notion, Simon Dewey said that the, the, the interior in the crystal is anterior, is, uh, is, is passed in, a, in this sort of radical sense in that so the, the crystal individuates at that limit uh, that separates it from its uh, surrounding medium. And then what has already crystallized, what's on the interior of the crystal is just inert. It, it has no effect on the ongoing process of individuation. Uh, whereas in the case of the living organism, the interior is simultaneous with the, the limit of the organism. So it's, it's not, um, it's not uh, sort of stuck in the past in the way that it is in, in the case of the crystal. It's... Um, uh, instead, we have a, a sort of uh, simultaneity of the the interior and the uh, the limit of the organism, uh, right? So, because of this, it means that the the whole uh, the whole interior of the living organism is simultaneous to itself. It's simultaneous to the boundary and to itself in a way that the uh, crystal is not. Uh, so the crystal has this uh, sort of stru temporal structure that stretches out through time in a way that the uh, the living organism uh, instead has a, a, a sort of uh, simultaneous temporal structure. And he, so Simon Don suggests that we should have something uh, analogous to topology for uh, for time in the same way that topology has to do with with space and uh, gives this notion of uh, relationships in space without distance metrics. Likewise, we would have a notion of uh, relationships in time or of temporal structure that would not have uh, some sort of measurement of, of lengths of time. Uh, and so he, he calls this chronology, which I, I think he doesn't use this term throughout the rest of the book, I don't think. I think it's just this passage. But so we, we can think chronology is to, to time as topology is to space, effectively, is the uh, analogy that he's using here. And so he, he suggests, uh, against Bertin, he suggests that this doesn't mean that uh, chronology uh, or the chronological um, form of individuation is, is necessarily continuous. 
so there can be multiple different structures of, of chronology. So you can have continuous ones, but also discontinuous ones and various different uh, relations between different portions of time in a living organism. Yeah, the, the bit on chronology is a little bit abstract um, in comparison to the, the topology stuff. Um, but I think we can, we can think of this. Um, I, I, I had mentioned earlier the, uh, the way that the living organism is uh, simultaneous with itself. But there's another respect in which the, the living organism also has a temporal structure in the sense that what is interior um, is something that is uh, already created. Uh, and then the, the boundary at, at which the organism grows uh, is a boundary between past and, and future. Uh, so if we think of uh, something like our, our sponges or corals and so on that we looked at in, in uh, earlier parts of this, uh, of this uh, part on bioindividuation, they can regenerate um, if a portion is, is, is mutilated, they can regenerate. Um, and so that, that boundary is a, is a boundary not just uh, between exterior and interior, but also between past and future uh, in the sense that uh, the what is inside the boundary is uh, has already been uh, elaborated and and uh, developed, and then what is outside the boundary will eventually will in the future be um, elaborated and developed. Uh, so that's sort of the idea of uh, the interior of the relationship between the chronology and topology um, is that you have this temporal structure across the boundary between um between past and future in the same way that you have uh the top the topological structure across the boundary between interior and exterior and then there's this little bit here there's a sort of um play on words i guess which i think is what footnote 66 i think is explaining that probably um where so in in french the word for future is avenir um which but you can break down into to arrive or to come so here he um he he uses the and then he also uses the word advenir um which means well here it's translated as come forth but um i think you could also translate it as uh to um to happen and and so there's a, a sort of play on words where where he, uh, he says that something exterior arrives or, or or comes forth or happens it's uh it has this uh nature of being to come or being a uh, future and and so there's a yeah there's a sort of play on words which doesn't really translate that well um but there's a this notion of the exterior as something that can arrive or that that can happen and uh um the the futureness is um is the results or, or is a, a consequence of that uh, characteristic. Uh, and then the last bit here is where he says that topology and chronology are not a priori forms of sensibility. And so here, again, this is a criticism or, or um, a demarcation from Kant. Uh, and he's, he's done this a couple of times throughout the, the book uh, so far, where he's, he's um, sort of set out the difference between his conception and, and Kant's conception. Uh, uh, and so, of course, for Kant, space and time are the two forms of sensibility. So, and then the matter is uh, um, the sense impressions or the, um, 
the effect on us uh, of what is outside of us uh, in some mysterious way. And uh, the forms of sensibility are, are imposed on the matter um, that arrives from without. Simondon argues, or the way he presents it here, uh, he, he suggests that topology and chronology, so space and time, are not... Um, are not a priori forms of sensibility, so they're, they're, they're not imposed on uh, some sort of matter that comes from outside. Rather, a living being undergoing individuation uh, generates something like a topology and a chronology. Um, it, that's, that's part of what it is for a living being to individuate, is just to, is to have uh, an interior and an exterior, and uh, the uh, corresponding notions uh, with respect to chronology. Uh, this point that he makes here about the present being the sort of moment of selective assimilation at the surface, I guess. I can't remember if it was last week or the week before, but we were talking about the way that he uh, was talking about the present in relation to the collective. And um, Nan, I think you suggested that 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 is a limited kind of present that doesn't always occur, and there might be another another kind of present in vital individuation that doesn't necessarily involve, you know, uh, being part of the collective. I wonder if this is the, that, um, the present that like all vital individuation, uh, experiences, which is distinct from like the present of the collective. Um, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Um, but that's a, a good suggestion. I think that makes sense. Um, so yeah, this, this notion of a, of a, of a present as um, the selection of something uh, that uh, can pass from the outside to the inside or that um, passes from the future to the past. I think for Simono, this is a, a notion that is universal for, uh, for all vital individuation. Uh, so any, anything that is undergoing vital individuation will have this kind of present, whereas the, the notion of the present that we saw last time with the um, in relation to the collective, I think, yeah, I, I think we have to understand that as uh, a notion of the present that is rare. Uh, like he, when he, whenever he talks about collective individuation, it doesn't doesn't just mean a group of individuals or a group of of people that sort of gather together. the The actual process of collective individuation is something that only occurs rarely um, or from time to time. It's it's not a um, a sort of uh, everyday occurrence. Uh, and, and so that present can't be the, the same as this present. So, yeah, I think, I think this present might be the, the one that we were sort of looking for last time, uh, the one that all organisms, as insofar as they are undergoing vital individuation, would share. Okay, so, um, yeah, we're almost done this section. So I think I'll read the next bit um, up to the end of the, the subsection here. We would therefore need a word to designate this initially singular, singular dimensionality that later splits into a separate temporal dimensionality and a separate spatial dimensionality. It is not, if not only this word, but also the set of unified representations allowing for it to have a precise meaning existed. It would perhaps be possible to think morphogenesis, to interpret the signification of forms, and to understand this first relation of the living being to the universe and to other living beings that can be understood neither according to the laws of the physical world nor according to the structures of the complicated psyche. 
even before sensory and motor structures, there must be chronological and topological structures, namely the universe of tropisms, tendencies, and drives. The psychology of expression, which is still too detached and arbitrary, arbitrary, albeit grounded in its research, would perhaps find a path for axiomatization in a similar topological and chronological research. Furthermore, this type of research could perhaps allow us to understand why there are intermediary processes between those of the inert world and those of the animate world, like the formation of crystallizable viruses, such as, for example, the mosaic virus of tobacco. This virus develops like a living being within the sap of the plant. It assimilates because if the tobacco plant is inoculated with a certain quantity of this virus, the quantity of virus increases. After extracting sap from the plant and then crystallizing the virus, we obtain a greater quantity of crystallizable virus. In contrast, when this virus is crystallized, nothing allows us to say that it is alive. It is no more alive than hemoglobin or chlorophyll. If chemical bodies are found that are capable of assimilating into the state of the solution, without requiring a crystallizable germ, uh, sorry, a crystalline germ in a supersaturated or supercooled solution. A part of the gap that separates living processes from physical chemical processes would be bridged. The case of viruses indeed seems to be intermediary between the two orders of processes. However, it should be noted that the mosaic virus of tobacco only assimilates in, into, a, living, uh, into a, a living milieu. I think that should be in a living milieu. The potential of the living plant can therefore be utilized by the virus, a virus which in this sense would not be veritably alive if its activity of assimilation is in reality a borrowed activity, sustained and nourished by the plant's activity. The plant has not been resolved to the, sorry, the problem has not been resolved to this day. It can just be said that it would certainly be necessary to consider this problem as implying a formation of an axiomatic according to chronology and topology, and not merely according to physical chemical knowledge. The study of elementary operations does not imply an atomism. It is regrettable that the holistic systematics of biologism, such as it is presented by Goldstein, is conceived necessarily as macrophysical and is fixated on the totality of a complex organism. Goldstein's Parmenidian ontology prevents any relation between the study of the living being and the study of inert beings whose processes are microphysical. There can be an intermediary order of phenomena between fragmentary microphysics and the macrophysical organismic unit. This order would be that of genetic, chronological, and topological processes, i.e. processes of individuation belonging to all the orders of reality in which ontogenesis takes place. An axiomatic of ontogenesis remains to be discovered, at least if this axiomatic is definable. It could be that ontogenesis is not able to be axiomatized, which would explain the existence of philosophical thought as perpetually marginal with respect to all other studies since philosophical thought is what is driven by the implicit or explicit research of ontogenesis in all orders of reality. So he talks here about um, these viruses, these crystallizable viruses, um, and viruses have this um, strange status of sort of being uh, intermediate between living beings and inert matter um, because uh, so as, as Simon Dong explains here, uh, if you take a virus outside of a, an organism, it, it's just, uh, you know, a, a, a piece of um, a protein, basically, that, uh, that has this RNA um, strand inside it, um, and it doesn't really do anything on its own. It doesn't, it, it, unlike a, a, a living being in the proper sense, it doesn't assimilate um, nutrition it doesn't uh 
uh, take in material from its environment or or energy from its environment and and metabolize and you know do things with it it uh it just it's inert as long as it's outside of a its host organism but then when you introduce it into its host organism uh then it uh uh it does reproduce um uh and and then so it has this property that we associate with living beings so it it reproduces itself and it can increase in in numbers uh inside the the living organism um and so i think at the time simon was writing i don't think the mechanism of uh viral reproduction had been uh established yet but we now know that viruses reproduce basically by hijacking the the cells of the host organism so if it's like a tobacco plant for example they the the virus inserts its own uh, RNA into the the um, the the cells of the tobacco plant, and uh, basically makes the the tobacco plant cells produce more viruses instead of uh, doing what they normally do, and which is why uh, viral infection is a kind of disease because it it uh, interferes with the the normal functioning of the organism. Yeah. So this so. Simondon sort of raises this possibility. He says, like, um, I forget exactly where he says that, but he um, he says he says right. He says the um, the potential that the living plant can therefore be utilized by the virus, uh, a virus which in this sense would not be veritably alive if its activity of assimilation is in reality a borrowed activity sustained and nourished by the plant's activity. And so this this possibility is in fact the one that um, we know now is the case. So the the virus only reproduces by making the plant or the, the host organism reproduce itself, um, to reproduce the virus. Um, that is, so in that sense, we we would probably not want to say that a virus is alive. Um, it, it's it sort of has the the property of being reproducible and of. Uh, uh, spreading throughout living organisms, but we might not want to describe it as alive itself. Um, so it's um, it has a sort of borrowed life. It, it only lives through um, other living beings. Uh, and then Simon Dong suggests that um, we would need to have some sort of uh, general term that would cover both uh, topology and chronology. And he later on he uses. Um, genetic as the the term the term that covers both of these uh uh domains um so the the genetic or or morphogenesis or individuation would be the the term for um what exists prior to the separation between chronology and topology um so it's uh, a sort of uh a notion of uh, relations of ordering and uh, independent of whether those are spatial or temporal or, or uh, orderings. And so then he suggests that this, uh, this notion of a, a genetic ordering would be, um, would serve to sort of systematize um, uh, certain uh, parts of psychology, uh, and he, he refers here to the psychology of expression, but I'm not sure exactly what that is meant to, uh, where is that? Yeah, the psychology of expression. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what he has in mind when he talks about that. Um, 
uh, psychology of expression, but um, he suggests that uh, it would benefit from this notion of a genetic or morphogenetic um, ordering relationship. Uh, and then he he just sort of in passing right at the end of the the subsection, he he suggests that um, um, ontogenesis. Um, might be something that is not axiomatizable, so it's not reducible to some sort of um, uh, systematized theory. It's something that can only be, um, uh, which has this sort of marginal existence. So if if philosophy, philosophical thought is um, uh, a research into ontogenesis, then uh, this would be why philosophy always has this sort of marginal rule. It is never... Um, uh, on the secure path of a science, as as Kant puts it, is it, never something that just um, develops and, and progresses in a, a uniform manner. It's always sort of restarting and reformulating itself. And and so here we can take this as a sort of metaphilosophical statement. So this is Simon Don telling us a little bit about how he uh, understands what philosophy is doing. Um, and uh, And so it's uh um philosophy is always about uh ontogenesis uh a research into ontogenesis in all orders of reality uh and um we could i think take the the converse proposition that um research into ontogenesis is philosophical so yeah, so insofar as a, a particular domain of research is, becomes research into ontogenesis, then it's also philosophical to that extent. Uh, and so that sort of explains um, why Simon Don is sort of drawing on all these different um, scientific disciplines, because he's, he's taking like the little bits um, where they start um, approaching this notion of ontogenesis, he, he's taking the ontogenetic bits of different sciences and assembling them into this philosophical enterprise. Um, so I suggested at the outset today that um, that uh, we could have a shorter session because um, we're just at the end of this part of the book. And so I thought it would be better to um, finish the one part today and then start on psychic individuation next time. If anyone has any questions or, or comments or, or anything about um, this whole part of the book, uh, we could go over that uh, before we, we end today. So anything on, on vital individuation and how it sort of fits together. Um, if you have any questions or comments, uh, now's the time. Yeah, we've been reading uh, the same chapter for uh, many months, right? Yes, it's been uh, probably two or three months now that we've been on vital individuation. So we, we, we did psychic individuation, which was longer um, that, or sorry, we did physical individuation, um, which was longer. Uh, and then we did vital individuation, which was a little bit shorter. Um, but uh, we're, we're more than halfway through the book now. Um, the, the two parts on Psychic individuation and uh, collective individuation are uh, considerably shorter. So let's see. In, I, I have the French one here. I don't have the English, but um, yeah, it's about a uh, hundred pages um, left in the French 
uh, from where we are. Uh, so I don't know exactly how much in the English translation, but uh, we're uh, more than halfway, probably closer to two thirds of the way through the book. Um, one thing that I was going to ask about was collective individuation. Is that coming up or have y'all already done that? Uh, no, so we 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 have um, psychic individuation as the next chapter, and then collective individuation after that. Um, okay. But he, he he has done some uh, sort of previews of of collective individuation. There was one that we saw uh, last week or the week before, uh, I think two weeks ago, um, on uh, the relationship between collective individuation and uh, and death, um, the way that the individual. Um, entity or the individual living organism dies and uh, sort of lives on in the collective or, or passes on uh, its individuation into the collective. Right, yeah, so Angus has, has posted the uh, the reference to that one, thanks. Um, yeah, so the, he's, he's sort of interspersed a couple of different previews of collective individuation uh, throughout this part of the book as well. Awesome, yeah, that, that helps a lot. I'm just trying to get back in the rhythm of things and the psychic and collective individuation was was more what I was kind of intrigued by. So I'm glad that I, I came, I'm coming back right at the right spot, apparently. Yeah, and um, we're glad to have you back. Um, but yeah, anytime that you're um, available and, uh, you know, we have the um, material that you're interested in, then yeah, feel free to join. Yeah, hopefully I'll have more time for you now to to converse on Sunday so it looks it looks good I'm optimistic cool yeah that sounds good um I hope we get some uh Hegelian comments as well because there's been a few instances where he uh he um brings up dialectics and and why his approach uh, to individuation and, and ontogenesis is not dialectical and and his sort of criticisms of dialectics so I, I'd be uh interested to hear your take on some of those bits. Mm, I bet he thinks it's like too chronological. Um, yeah, he, he thinks that, uh, well, so one, one bit is uh, the, the linearity that he um, ascribes to dialectics. Um, so yeah, the, this notion that there's like a, a set sequence of stages that it has to pass through, um, right. which I, I don't think is uh, a very good um, understanding of dialectics. Uh, um, um, and then another one, another criticism that he makes or another distinction that he makes between his, his own um, approach and, and dialectics is that he, he doesn't think there's a, a moment of negation um, uh, or like a, 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 a negative um, and then negation of the negation. Um, he, he thinks that um, we have this uh, Disparation uh, sort of plays the role of that negative moment, but it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't disappear. It doesn't. It's not itself negated later on. Uh, so he thinks there's a sort of um, preservation of that disparation, in rather than a, a negation of the negation. That sounds like close to classical di dialectics, as opposed to Hegelian. Yeah, I think he. Um, I think he would see his own. Um, uh, approach as closer to platonic um, dialectics and, and rather than um, Hegelian. Yeah, I just I just kind of um, recently kind of stumbled into the the maze of the the evolution of 
of what dialectics means throughout, you know, from early to late Plato and all that. So it's interesting to see that from a, I like to kind of recapture the the broader historical use of the term dialectic and bring it back to its, what I think is its proper context for, well, even for understanding Hegel, to be quite honest. Oh, that's amazing. Do you have any um, recommendation book about dialectics? Because I'm very interested in that topic too. Yeah, actually, I think I, I just downloaded some recent, I'm organizing my, my downloaded books right now, but I'm here, let me go and look and see if I can dip and find. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that sounds interesting. Um, yeah, the, the the whole notion of dialectics, of course, has like um, like a, a, a really um, complicated history because it, it changes meaning so much um, over the course of time, and uh, different authors use it in, in different ways. Uh, uh, oh yeah, so there it is in the chat. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm getting better at. Um having like books accessible really quickly, like organizing, getting everything tied up. And yeah, hopefully yeah, I sounds, can do a lot more of that. That sounds like a good a good plan because my, my downloads folder is just full of like hundreds of PDFs that I haven't gotten to yet, so. Yeah. Uh, like, um, sorry, sorry. Oh, go ahead, I was just saying yes. Uh, the title is uh, Development from Plato to uh, Aristotle. Like, is it gonna stay with the Greeks or is it gonna uh, be um, also, like, are we gonna have in that book uh, the modern definitions too? Oh, no, 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 no. This is strictly kind of recapturing that kind of classic um, conception of the dialect and getting that. Because that's like oh, because um, I'm looking for a general book, more general that has like until nowadays, modern days. Like it's like uh, we were taking this exact uh, class, and uh, that they were saying very cool uh, comparisons between Zizek's dialectics and uh, Badiou's dialectics. Um, so I'm also interested in the modern ones too. Sure, I I mean I just I implicitly now always think of it as building upon the the classic project because of the kind of well I don't know I, I it seems to it seems to be a method at least that it, that eliminates confusion by rooting it in kind of a, a feeling of historical necessity if nothing else so I mean if it, I think that this is I mean there probably is an awesome book out there that's like the entire history of the dialectic and like from every every philosopher and what they've done with the dialectic but um I think that that it's this is this is probably the best diving board at least. Um, I, and I think that in the, the the kind of contemporary association is almost exclusively like Hegelian because of just kind of happenstance. I think so. It's nice to get a little broader perspective than just the the only only Hegel dialectic definition. Yeah, I think if you if you want to have um, something like on everyone's contemporary use of, of dialectics, you, you might have to write that book yourself, because um, I don't know if anyone has has done... Uh, uh, actually, that, just something comes to mind. I'll see if I can find it right away. But um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if anyone's done like um, uh, a sort of like a, a general um, account of um, dialectics as it's used in, in different contemporary philosophies. It would probably have to, there would have to be like a, maybe like say like seven or eight volume series of like 
dialect because it's just it's so consequential in so many different epochs of historical progress or philosophical history one of the two uh, so Angus has a question in the chat here about uh, internal resonance. So is internal resonance the same as the transductive mediation between different levels of interiority and exteriority on, on page 252? It's a good question. I'm not sure. Um, let me go back to 252 here, trying to find that bit. Um, so the transductive mediation between different levels of interiority and exteriority. Oh, yeah, here it is. Um, I think that's right. I think... I'm not I'm not 100% sure but yeah I think that um in the case of of um vital individuation internal resonance is uh is the same as this um transductive mediation um between interiorities and, and exteriorities uh and and that, yeah so um it, it it's a uh, related to analogical function so yeah transduction is always connected to analogy for Simondon, or, or those two terms are, are sort of linked to each other. Yeah, there's um, an analogical nature of internal resonance or something like that. Any other comments or questions before we wrap up? Okay, uh, so yeah, let's, let's end here for today. Um, we'll pick up from the beginning of psychic individuation next time. Uh, so thank you everyone for, uh, for joining in and for your contributions uh, and see you next week.